about to get started with the final keynote of the day, but I gotta tell you a few things before we do. Sorry, I've been standing all day, I'm kinda tired. Uh, number one, I think we've lost a few folks. That's okay. I feel very bad if they're going back to the East Coast. Um, so one suggestion, for those of you guys who are sitting over there, move over here and move forward a little bit. Let's pack it in a little bit for Farhad and Andrew and Gene Allen. You're gonna wanna see this, this is gonna be incredible. But, so seriously, hop up if you would, move over, show them there's a crowd. Don't make them feel like, oh man, I'm playing to like the loneliest crowd ever, because it kinda looks that way from where I'm sitting. If you don't think I'm telling the truth, come up here and take a look. A uh, Couple other things I have to tell you, so one, uh, as you are exiting, and I'll tell you this to you again later, but as you are exiting, there are some boxes that say TerraCycle. They're white, little green recycling things on them. I promised you guys at the opening night reception we were going to make this one of the most sustainable conferences possible. And so we've done a lot of things to do that. We've been composting food. We've been donating what we don't eat to folks here in the San Diego area. We're very proud of that. But we also want to make sure that the things that we've given you which are all awesome, who doesn't like a selfie stick, if you, for some reason, that is unknown to me, uh, don't want to keep that, stick it in the box. And you might think to yourself, no, you can't recycle that. The company TerraCycle is extraordinary. They can take anything, probably not, they don't want your food, but anything else, you can toss it in that box and they will find a way to break it into its component parts and they will recycle it or they will upcycle it. So, if you don't want your badge, like floor, I see your badge there. So normally you might think, well, I've, I mean, and maybe it's a souvenir, keep it. But if you don't want it, stick it in the box, okay? And I will take responsibility for making sure it gets to where it needs to go. Otherwise, if you stick something in a trash can, it is a very good chance that you're basically sticking it in the ocean. And many of you probably had your toes in the ocean uh, over the last couple of days, and I intend to a little bit later today, so I would ask you personally, please don't stick stuff in the ocean. Put it in the box. Uh, one other thing. Uh, and that is a huge thank you. First to you uh, for taking all the time you have away from your families. That probably hasn't been a huge hardship, I know. But, uh, but it's important that you've done this. It's an extraordinary signal. Uh, but it's also worth thanking all the folks who've done work over the last couple of days to make this possible. Uh, and folks have been getting up really early and working really late. So first, I'd like you to thank the guys who've been making all this stuff on the stage happen seamlessly, the guys from Voice and Video. All the folks at the Lowe's Hotel who have been incredibly kind and generous and mostly invisible. Uh, and, and now I'm gonna get a little preachy for a second. If you have not, and you've not yet checked out of your room, if you have not left something for the housekeeping staff, my guess is many of you do this as a matter of course, but if you do not, please leave whatever you got in your pocket on the bed as you roll out the door if you're leaving today. It's important. These guys don't make nearly as much money as we do, and they deserve it. They have very hard jobs, and they don't usually have one job, right? They have two or three jobs, so give what you can. And then I also want to acknowledge Tracy Mitchell and Chris Teed, uh, who are a big part of the network's back office. They make the place run. And even more importantly, Tristan Mahabir and Maggie Sauerhag, who've helped me over the last many months. And I think they're here, so come on up stage, because they should get this view, and they should get a, an acknowledgement from the crowd. Maggie, Tristan, come here real quickly. I'm not kidding. Tristan, I see you outside. Come in. Come on. He's going the opposite way. He's shy. All right, if you see Tristan, give him a clap on the back. Tell him he did an amazing job. Maggie has been working tirelessly. All those emails that have my name on them, they're from her. All right, now I'm going to uh, very briefly uh, introduce uh, the folks who are going to, not folks, you're just one person, but you're so smart it feels like there's a lot of you. Gene Allen Cowgill is a good friend of mine, uh, works at Atlantic Media Strategies, which is the consulting arm of the Atlantic Magazine. She's extraordinary. If you had a chance to be in her pre-conference workshop, you already know that, but you're about to find out now. Good afternoon. It is my pleasure to introduce you to our closing session here at ComNet 15 and to our guest, journalist Farhad Manju. Farhad started his journalism career at Salon.com and has been a columnist for the Wall Street Journal, Slate Magazine, and Fast Company. He is the author of True Enough, Learning to Live in a Post-Fast Society. 
Farhad, if you haven't had a chance to see it, uh, I highly recommend going over to his column now at the New York Times, State of the Art, which covers technology and how it's changing our society and our world. In a recent article about Farhad for Lifehacker, Andy Oren said, there's something about Farhad. Tech reporters can quickly become jaded and cynical about their work, but Farhad Manju's lucid writing lacks any sense of needless snark when he discusses how technology affects our lives. Farhad is going to be joined on stage by our moderator for the conversation, Andrew Sherry, Vice President of Communications for the Knight Foundation, who I'm sure many of you have had the chance to speak with over the course of this week. And uh, you can follow along with both of them on Twitter, although I assume you guys are not going to be tweeting too much while you're talking to each other. It would be impressive. Um, at F Manju, that's for Farhad, and uh, at Andy Sherry for Andrew. So please join me in welcoming Farhad and Andrew, and thank you all for a wonderful conference. It's been so wonderful to speak with all of you over the course of this week, and I look forward to the chance to speak with those of you who I haven't had a chance to talk to yet over the next couple of hours before we all head home. Thank you again, and welcome to Andrew and Farhad. Thanks for, so much for that nice introduction. Yeah, thanks. Hi. <clears throat> Hi, everybody. So you mentioned Farhad's columns. You know, in your columns, you are mostly serious. But on Twitter, you have this very quirky voice, and you're often, frankly, quite hilarious. So what thanks. I want to know is uh, which, which is the real Farhad? Um, the Twitter Farhad is the real Farhad, because no, there are no editors on Twitter. Um, it's just sort of the unfiltered me. And I often think that, the, um, that what I do on, on Twitter is like the realest version of what's going on in my brain um, because it's just the most unfiltered. And, um, and some people think like what I do on Twitter is kind of a persona, like it's fake, uh, that I'm like it's, a, it's kind of an act, but it's not really an act. It's like sometimes I say dumb things on Twitter because like I had actually had a dumb thought. Um, so. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so, so I would say that that is the more authentic version of me. So the, the medium really does affect the message, though? I mean, how do you, how do you think of those two things differently? In a way? Oh, yeah, I mean, so what I do in my column is, uh, you know, a very formal, structured, uh, like, it's, it's argumentation. So it's, I, I write a, a column about technology and society and sort of what's going, how technology is changing business and what we're doing. And um, usually it takes the form of uh, some kind of argument. Uh, you know, this is good, this is bad, and this is how things are going to change because of this. Um, and, you know, it's a very structured thing that takes me a while to write. It's not sort of tossed off. Uh, hopefully it's good. More people, I think, read it than read the tweets. Um, but Twitter is just, and, and, you know, much else I do online is just much more, uh, you know, it's quicker and it's faster and it's less considered. Um, hopefully, it doesn't get me fired at some point, but it but could. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, you know, probably many of the people here have spent the last you know five years persuading their organizations to get comfortable with social media. Um, are we being too earnest and too serious on social media? Um, I mean, it depends on who you are. Some people are. Some people are having a lot of fun. Um, I, so, so you know, I've been working at the Times for a year and a half. Um, I've been reading the Times since I was a teenager. And for a long time, the New York Times as an organization was just this very opaque place. Uh, you know, you saw bylines, but you didn't know who the people who were creating this amazing thing, who they were, what, they, what their thoughts were like, kind of what influenced them. and. You know, that's, all of that is part of the experience of, should be part of the experience of reading the Times. Um, and so my goal in Twitter is to give, you know, what I do at Twitter and increasingly like Snapchat and other places is to give people a sense of who I am and like sometimes a behind the scenes look at what we're doing, what eventually ends up in the column. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's to kind of remove some of that opacity so that the people who, you know, follow me on Twitter and then read the columns, get something deeper, I think, from it mm -hmm. than the people who just you know, see it in the newspaper and read it. 
Well, I, you know, I said that you were mostly uh, serious in your columns. Sometimes you're not so much. Um, your last column for Slate was a very compelling argument why men should wear makeup. So I have to, I mean, I have to ask in the spirit of full journalistic disclosure, I mean, is this the real self or are you wearing makeup today? I'm not wearing makeup, but I should be. I think, I think you'd appreciate this talk, you know, at least 10% more if I was wearing makeup. <laughs> Um, no, it's a, I, it, it often, so I've been on TV, when I, whenever I'm on TV, they put, they put makeup on you, and I look much better. Like, and it's really, it's really strange that men don't wear makeup. Like, it's really strange that the same kinds of uh, incentives uh, that compel women to feel like they have, many women to feel like they have to wear makeup don't apply to men. And, you know, I, so for this column, I visited a, a makeup artist who made me look much better. It's, the only reason I don't do it is because I have two children and like it would be a lot of time, but like just a little bit of makeup would be, would be great. All right, so we've established that we're getting the unvarnished Farhad today. <laughs> so tell us a little bit more about yourself. The, you know, um, communications professionals and journalists, you know, they have different objectives, but actually many of the ways that we actually work are, are quite similar. Yeah. So, um, you know, Tell us, uh, you know, basically like about how, how you work, what, what tools you use to make yourself, you know, more effective, more productive, how you both are consuming information and how you are creating information. Yeah, so I, I mean, the basic thing that I, my basic task every week is to write one column. Uh, and the way that that works is I sort of read everything that's going on in the tech industry. Um, and I use a lot of tools to, I mean, I, I use sort of the common ones, like I visit a lot of websites, I use some aggregators about, uh, that follow tech news, like this site called Tech Meme, which boils down everything that's going on in the tech industry to a few headlines. Um, the, the biggest way that I come upon, the, the most important way that I come upon news stories these days is Twitter. Um, I'm just constantly following Twitter, um, finding news and reading it, um, and linking it out and sharing. I mean, that's just sort of become like the newswire uh, in a way, you know, like, you know, people in finance, I think, look at Bloomberg, um, and I look at Twitter. So being on Twitter, it's following a newswire, it's not procrastinating? I, I wonder about that. I mean, it's both, and, and it certainly occupies a lot of my time, mm -hmm. um, you know, hours and hours and hours. Like, the amount of time that I spend on Twitter way dwarfs the amount of time I spend writing a column. Uh, but like it's, I have come upon news stories, you know, important uh, column ideas from Twitter, uh, like connections on Twitter, and probably like one of the reasons that I've gotten my, like my last several jobs is because of like a networking effect that's, mm -hmm. that has created. Um, so I would say it's hugely been hugely important to like what I do on a day-to-day -day basis and my career at large. Mm. Um, but it's also like a waste of, you know, like in, often a waste of time. Right. <laughs> what, what else do you like to use? I mean, you know, on the hardware front, can, can you show people that your band of your Apple Watch actually matches your tie? That's, I just noticed that. That's yes. really impressive. It matches the tie. <laughs> um, I'm still unsure about the Apple Watch. Uh, it's nice, it's kind of interesting. I'm not sure if it's like a thing that I, 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 I have worn it every day since it came out a few, um, a few months ago, but I'm not sure it's something that most people need um, as I, I've written this. Yeah. Um, other tools, so I use, uh, I mean I use a bunch of uh, various kinds of organizational software. I use this tool called Workflowy, which is an outlining tool which I use all the time to just kind of jot down, I mean, I write all my notes on it. Um, I record my phone calls uh, for notes, and I use Skype to do that. Um, I use Dropbox to make sure I have everything everywhere. Um, I use Apple products a lot. Um, I'm kind of a cliche in that way, but. So what, what do you see coming down the road? Because you know we're all interested in the you know, future of tech and the future of communications, but you actually for a living, you're able to be trying to look at the you know, technology landscape and how it's changing. What, what do you see, I mean, let's start you know, sort of on the personal level of how we work and then you know, maybe go bigger from there, but what do you see as the technology developments that are coming down the road that are most likely to change how, how we work to start with? How we work as communications professionals? Um, I mean, I, I think what's going to happen is, what seems to be happening is we're seeing 
kind of an acceleration of the trend that has been going on for a while, which is like these huge platforms like Facebook and Twitter um, and others are becoming a more and more central part of how people get their news and get information, and so that'll become like just an even bigger part of it. Um, I mean, Facebook is now something like 20% of the amount of time that people spend on their phones, they spend on the Facebook app. Um, that seems to be growing, and like the other, the sec I think the second or third time uh, spent is Instagram, so which is another Facebook property, and WhatsApp is also huge. So basically all of the Facebook properties are right, responsible for like all of the time we spend on our phones, and you know, I think that's going to get that, that that share is going to get higher, and the sort of this one company will be responsible for an ever greater share of the amount well, of information what, we get. What do you think? What What do you think that will mean for us? Our, you know, us writ large. You know. Um, yeah, I mean, it it means a couple things. So, I don't I don't think it would I don't think it's necessarily like a terrible thing. Um, some people in the news business think it's a terrible thing, uh, but you know. What, what seems to be happening is that it's, first of all, bringing uh, a bunch of news organizations and you know, other kinds of people who need to communicate much closer to their audience in a way that really wasn't possible before. Like You can now have um, a very, uh, something like an intimate relationship with an audience that you couldn't in the past. And what I've noticed is, um, you know, so like if you think about something like Procter & Gamble, which spends tens of billions of dollars on advertising to, uh, on a set of brands to like get us to think about these brands tied in others as like core to you know, how we perceive the world, like things we can never forget. Um, and, and Procter and & Gamble does that mostly by like blanketing television with ads. Um, and it co it's costly, but it creates this like deep relationship. In the future, I think what'll happen more often is we'll get smaller brands that you, with which you have deeper connection um, that kind of come out of nowhere and then uh, and and that don't require tens of billions of dollars. So like we're already seeing it with consumer products. Like uh, you know uh, there are a whole bunch of new men's shaving products like uh, Dollar Shave and Harry's uh, that have come about and are competitors to a huge multi-billion dollar brand like Gillette only because they've used social media really mm -hmm. cleverly and they've come upon, you know, with new business models. So they, you know, they, they say they're cheaper and they, you see them in your Facebook feed every day. Um, and that has created like these brands that I don't think Gillette, you know, would have been on, the like would have looked out for a few years ago. Yeah, you know, if you're a, if you're a marketer, you're gonna live, breathe, sleep data. Um, if you're a journalist, I mean, how much attention do you pay to analytics um, with either your column or what you're doing on Twitter? Um, so I work at the Times, which has for a long time discouraged uh, this idea of reporters, sort of the people who are writing the stuff, like getting access to the data um, for, for pretty solid ethical reasons. Like if I'm writing uh, with looking at like traffic data, like it's probably gonna skew what I write. Um, that's changing a little bit at the times. Like we now get a daily audience report that tells us uh, in, in like a not very granular detail, but like enough that it's interesting, um, like which stories did well and why they did well and where, where the traffic came from. Uh, when I worked at um, websites, like I worked at Slate for a long time, we would get much more information, and it would be both uh, important and useful. Like I, I would, I would, uh, I knew what worked and I knew what didn't, and like would sometimes write to what worked. Uh, like it just sort of, it would be an important tool in like deciding what columns to write. Um, on the other hand, it would make me crazy. Like if I wrote something that wasn't popular, like it would just like ruin my day and ruin uh, like my week often. Um, so you know, there I think there's like a bliss in being a little bit ignorant of the traffic because you kind of you can kind of just do whatever you think is important and sometimes not worry. Um, but it, you know, it's still even if you don't have details, like um, even if you don't have access to traffic, like I still pay attention to like how many people are talking about my column on Twitter, uh, just kind of in a rough sense. If people are talking about it, that makes me happy, and if people aren't talking about it, I get very sad. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, 
earlier you mentioned the, you know, the rising power of the platforms. Um, I was just at the Online News Association uh, conference in Los Angeles, and one of the keynote speakers was the head of Google News. And honestly, I had never seen Google on the defensive. But they are on the defensive because now that the web has gone almost entirely mobile, there's no longer, there's not an open web on mobile. It's, you're going through one of the pipes. You're going through Facebook, mostly. That's, they have this death grip on the, on the mobile web. And now, you know, Apple is doing ad blockers. So at the same, so, but at the same time, he intimated that, um, you know, Google and, uh, well, and, you know, perhaps Twitter had a counter-attack strategy. What, do you know anything about that? Do you know what we should, could be expecting about this, this battle for the, you know, for the mobile consumer? Yeah, so, I mean, the huge change, as you say, is in the past, many of us got our news, I mean, in the past, like, not like in the distant past, but in, basically in the past decade, we've gotten our news through the web, and the web is kind of pretty, pretty quickly going away. Um, it's going away in that, like, people are getting the web on their phones, and to access it, you need to go through uh, mobile Safari or an app like Facebook, which like opens up embedded web pages. Um, and both Apple and uh, Facebook um, are changing what that means. Like, so for Facebook, the problem is that when people open links on, from the Facebook app, it's a pretty slow process. Like everything else in the Facebook app works quickly and then you open a link and it kind of grinds to a halt because like the web is inherently slower. Um, and it's also like clogged full of ads, which also slow down uh, people's experiences. So Facebook has launched this thing called Instant Articles, which uh, just makes a news story load up much more quickly and that's because like Facebook is actually hosting the content itself. And so the content is part of the Facebook app in a way, you know, technically in a way that uh, a web page is not. Um, Apple is doing that with a, with in its new iOS, it has um, a news app which does that. And Apple also uh, in, in iOS 9 is allowing people to block ads which sort of also affects the economic model of the web. Um, Google's plan, from what I know, is to do something similar, which is to host the content itself um, and to make it load up, load up more quickly. Um, and it's partnering, I think, with Twitter. Um, so, so, so uh, a link that you open on Twitter uh, would load up in, um, you know, in a faster way than it does now. Uh, what, it, what this means for big publishers is unclear. Like, you know, the New York Times has signed up with several of these, um, and so you can get New York Times stories from instant articles on Facebook or Apple News, probably from the Google system. Um, and so, you know, and they all have, deep, like, ad breakdowns, so, like, the revenue will be split and it'll work out. What it means for smaller publishers is less clear. Uh, you know, there could be a whole bunch of smaller publishers who think of the web as, like, their, their main access point for, for, uh, for their readers right now who will have to move on to these new platforms, and it's unclear if, like, their business models will work on these new platforms. So it's, it's, it is, as ever, this period of transition for the media business. But, like, I think this period of transition for the media business will like never end, at least not in the next decade or so. Well, let's let's uh, shift from media to uh, technology and politics. You know, what we've seen in the last uh, few election cycles is increasingly more, uh, you know, targeting and, you know, use of big data to be more effective in outreach to voters. How are the, how are the campaigns going to top what they did in 2012 and uh, now 2016 is coming along? Um, yeah, so I mean, I think the, I think we we are seeing more and more spending on digital campaigns, but I think that there's still going to be like this huge amount of money being spent on TV because TV is still, uh, even though the audiences for TV are like shrinking over time, it's still like the way you get kind of the biggest chunk of. Uh, of people um, in, a, in an effective and engaging way. But I think we're going to see you know, more spending on like video po political campaigns than we did in the past, video ads online than we did in the past. Um, the other thing that you're seeing that like you mentioned is, is targeting. Um, and I think there's greater opportunity now to like combine online targeting with offline targeting with like, you know, combine you, sh you show someone a Facebook ad, an ad on Facebook or an ad served by the Google network, and you also have an actual 
uh, canvasser going door to door uh, to that same person. Um, there are ways to connect those databases, and like many, uh, you know, I think the Democrats in particular are are, are good at that um, and have this kind of data to do that. Um, and I think we'll just see an acceleration of that trend. Like this is going like each four-year cycle, I think, brings uh, sort of new tools and new like innovations to this, and like every time it requires both more money, but like you see kind of greater effectiveness from these mm -hmm. these kinds of um, you know digital campaigns. Mm -hmm. How about looking ahead, not just you know at work, media, you know the things that are right in front of us, but just big picture. What, what do you see as the biggest technology changes that are coming down the road? I mean, that are going to have the biggest effect on our lives, on the economy, um, you know, basically on how we live and work. Yeah, so, I mean, I think that it's hard. The biggest story that we are covering kind of in the tech group at the New York Times for the past, like, at least a year has been the rise of on-demand companies like Uber. So these are companies that use smartphones to deploy people in the real world to do stuff in the real world. So, um, and I think that makes it, it's sort of a major transition from what we were doing with technology uh, you know, a decade ago, which was mostly kind of software and like changing how people kind of communicate online. And now we're kind of changing what they do in the real world. Um, and that's gonna bring all kinds of changes. Like the big story with Uber is that, you know, so Uber is this uh, transportation network that gets people to drive and, uh, and it routes them with smartphones. It routes riders and, and drivers with smartphones. Um, but what they're doing really intelligently is kind of like slicing out amounts of time and people and like, uh, you know, creating these little mini jobs for people. And you can see that happening in a variety of, uh, of different kinds of occupations, right? Like there are, there are things like Uber for lawyers and Uber for doctors, which is like you need a doctor for a specific short amount of time, uh, you know, maybe to come to your house um, or maybe to like perform a, a certain uh, function and you like pay for that amount of time and you, and you slice it through software and you manage it through software and there are Uber for lawyers too. Um, and, you know, it's going to change various kinds of business models and it's also going to like, you know, what, what we've noticed Uber doing for many of the drivers is like, it allows them to work at any time and Uber is, for a lot of them, just like this in-between type job, like they need a little extra income and so they do it in off hours or extra hours. And I think that you'll notice that happening in many different occupations. Like the whole idea of downtime now seems a little antithetical because you can, um, you can just like profit from downtime anytime you have, like any, any, anytime you're not working seems like an opportunity cost because you can like log on to an, an app and like start making money immediately, whatever your profession is. What's, what do you think the overall impact on society is though as these jobs proliferate and you know, other ones go away? Are we thinking, of, you know, are they just opportunities to make extra money or are you creating you know, armies of people with like you know, no benefits, no retirement plan and you know, I mean, does it matter because can anything be done either way? Oh, I think things can be done, right? Like there's this huge, there's, there's a controversy about these um, contract jobs, which is like, so we're, you know, Uber has hired hundreds of thousands of people around the world, uh, but you know, many people in the labor uh, movement think they're not good jobs. And there's both a court fight and kind of a larger public policy debate about whether these people should get benefits and whether we need some kind of uh, different organizational model. Like, they're somewhere. They seem to be somewhere between contract workers and full-time employees. And so, should we should we have some sort of intermediate model there? Um, the other thing to think about, though, with these with these new kinds of jobs, is that they may be like the they may uh, go away very quickly, just as, just as sort of quickly as they materialize. So, you know, you can see Uber's jobs being. Uh, eliminated through automation over time. So like as cars uh, get smarter and drive 
uh, can drive themselves more often. Um, you know, those Uber jobs, like you, it, one way to think of Uber jobs is like they are doing, the drivers for Uber are doing kind of the last thing that computers can't do in that whole system. And so as computers can kind of get smarter, um, those jobs will be eliminated. And it's a large, you know, it's happening not, not only, and not even mainly for low, uh, low income, low skilled jobs, but for, uh, you know, middle class and higher skilled jobs. Like it actually makes more sense to work on automation to replace a lawyer or a doctor because like those people are costly. Um, so, so you know, um, my, my wife is a pathologist. She's a doctor who looks at um, cancer cells on slides and like diagnoses them. Uh, you know, it's just like pattern matching that software can do very easily. Uh, like, and, and have, have, you, have you told her that? Yeah, I've told her. <laughs> well, we have this conversation all the time and she, you know, like the reason that it's not done with software now is because uh, when the software is not quite good enough, but like over time it will be good enough. Like it'll get good enough like within the next 10 years. Um, and and, uh, and I, I mean, I'm not picking on my wife because like there's software to write news stories too. Like, like my job is gonna go away at some point. Uh, hopefully not my specific job, but a lot of people in my industry will be automated away. And this is, it's interesting because like, I think that a lot of people, you know, we see um, in the Republican uh, political um, campaign so far, like a lot of people have been focusing on like immigrants taking people's jobs. But, like robots are the much bigger threat here. Like <laughs> robots are the, we should be building a wall. Like if we're building a wall, we should build the robot wall. You, um, you know, you mentioned uh, self-driving cars, which, you know, I do hear more and more seems like an inevitability just because basically they drive better than we do. And, uh, but um, you know, Joey Ito, who is on the board of both Knight Foundation and the New York Times, you know, talks about, you know, use, about the ethical decisions that lie behind artificial intelligence. And, you know, the way he says it is like, um, okay, you're driving down the street, you're riding your self-driving car down the street. There's an old, you know, 2015 human-driven car that's like veering in the wrong lane because humans are fallible. And you have two choices, the this, this self-driving car. Do you do you smash into it and maybe die, or do you swerve to the side where there's a father and three kids on the sidewalk and kill them? So when they ask the survey, you know, most people respond like, oh, definitely just smash, you know, and avoid uh, hitting the children. But then they ask the question, it's like, would you buy a self-driving car that was programmed to smash and kill you rather than, uh, you know, going onto the sidewalk and killing kids? They're like, well, I'm not quite so sure. But I mean, the, you know, the question it brings up though is like as more and more of our lives and our world is gonna be decided by algorithms like the way like credit scores are done now, like who does the deciding? And if, if you feel that you've been treated unjustly, who do you protest to? Because there's no way to figure out how the decision happened. Yeah, it's gonna be an increasingly, uh, like it's gonna be a bigger and bigger problem. Like software will have to, over time, as it becomes sort of more important to our machines and like our daily lives, like it's going to have to be m like make ethical decisions. And someone is gonna program those ethical decisions. Um, and it's not quite clear yet, like whether the person that, programs those ethical decisions into software like will be regulated by some kind of, uh, you know, whether regulations will apply to that, whether it'll happen in secret. Like we're already seeing like algorithms decide a lot of things. Like the way that your news is presented to you on Facebook is decided by algorithms. And like there's no kind of oversight of that. Like Facebook is a private company and it can decide like it has first amendment rights to decide like editorially how it wants to present news to you. But it's, it's a huge change from like humans doing it. Um, and that will happen more often. Like you, can, you could easily argue that the software, like I could imagine a software company, uh, a, you know, a self-driving car company argue that like it's a first amendment, like copyrighted decision, like what their software is doing in a car. Um, and uh, you know, we're seeing it with Volkswagen, like their software created this, uh, you know, it, it violated, um, uh, regulations, it tried to cheat regulations, and it may have like harmed real people out in the world. And it's not quite clear that, you know, higher ups at Volkswagen 
it's not obvious that they had to know about it. Like it only takes a few people to program like an engine control unit. Like somebody, you know, some group of people could have done that in a small way and like affected this whole company and this whole, um, you know, and all of the repercussions from that. Um, and that's sort of the power of software. Like you don't need that many people. So that's moving quickly, and, it's, and of course, in you know, biochemistry, that's moving quickly. Our ability to you know create life in test tubes and things like that. Um, but you know, where where is the bio? You know, where's the ethical framework around that as well? And I, I just wonder. You know, many of us work for you know, well, we all work for organizations that are trying to make the world a better place. You know, in some way. But that's a lot of it is basically you know responding to existing problems and trying to help them. But I mean, is there potential for some issues and some problems coming down the line? You know, as a result of our technology advances that could end up being far you know far worse than anything we have now, as well as our ability to do far better. And is there a role, perhaps, for the you know the the independent sector, or whatever we call the nonprofit world, to actually be thinking about ethics and playing a role in ethics? Yeah, I don't think that there is really at this point this like well-established group of, you know, in the, in the way like there are bioethicists and groups that think about bioethics, I don't think there is um, that analog for software for like artificial intelligence and like how artificial intelligence is gonna change the world for the better or the worse. Um, and, the, and I think there should be, right? Like it seems obvious that this huge force that's probably going to change a lot of what we do uh, like that there should be groups on each side sort of agitating for and against it. Um, and, and not only agitating, just sort of like thinking through these problems. Like these problems I think exist now in kind of the realm of science, science fiction and like science fiction authors have thought about this. Um, but like science fiction is, is quickly becoming kind of like reality and like it hasn't sort of filtered down to like, you know, academics thinking about it or like think tanks thinking about it and kind of creating solutions for potential problems. So we want to take uh, questions from all of you now. Um, there are some microphones, uh, so if you if you want to ask a question, put your hand up, and someone will come with a microphone. And then if you could please, uh, you know, stand up, um, say your name and where you're from, and ask the un unvarnished Farhad anything you'd like to. Uh, Sean, if you don't mind helping me call the people, because from here I can't actually see. Hi there, my name is Raúl Audelo. I work at Earth Justice. I'm a senior web manager. And my question is uh, in and around this idea of um, mobilizing movements to get out and, and vote and get voter registration. You know, there's countries that are using technology to get high levels of participation from their um, citizens um, that, you know, reach higher than what we're doing here in America. You know, beyond like making it a national holiday and getting folks out to vote. How can we use technology? You know, we all have cell phones, we all, we all text message. How can we leverage that to increase the uh, numbers of participation? Yeah, I've seen, um, this was 2008 and in 2012, I've seen some pretty good studies about how uh, both uh, smartphones and social networks were used to like increase voter participation. Like, so like the first thing, um, so like political scientists have noticed for a while that like frequent contact with voters uh, in like the months and years leading up to election, like helps those people get uh, engaged and and eventually like increases the voter rate. Like so, if you could imagine that like a tool like Facebook could both identify and then like through offline ways like tell you who to contact um, in term as part of a canvassing campaign, like much earlier on and in, in like in a cheaper way than in the past that could uh, you know, increase the likelihood of those people voting. And then things like tools like um, you know, not mobile notifications and like text messaging on the day of, um, of campaigns. Like has, you know, there have been various small studies that show that that increases the likelihood that people will vote. And, and like also the inherent peer pressure of, of Facebook seems to work. Like when a lot of people say they've voted, that pushes other people to vote. Um, it like, you know, has this effect of like, suggesting that it's something you should do. Um, so it, it seems like, and I mean, in the big story, these aren't kind of completely novel methods, but the, I think the bigger idea here is you could do it at scale in a way that's cheaper than was possible in the past. Of being able to vote directly from your device? Yeah, I think that was a dream in the early days of the internet 
And I suspect that it's going to be a very long time, if like never, that that will be able to happen. Like people are just very worried, I think justifiably, of the security of like online interactions. Um, you have this huge problem, right, of like, if you vote through software, you have no idea if the software is correctly uh, registering your vote in a way that seems like, it's not completely um, solved, it's not completely solved with paper, right? Like you could do that with paper. You, like somebody could take all the ballots and like change the votes, but it's just much more difficult. And uh, with software, like you could do it at scale and like foreign powers could do it at scale uh, in a way that like is inherently scary. I think I see yeah. yeah. Microphone? Mm, thanks. Hi, Farhad. Thanks for being here. Eric Kassam, Imagine Institute, San Diego. Um, I'm curious about something. In the old days, I guess 10, 20 years ago, the content of the news was controlled by big corporations. And it seems to me there's been a democratization of it because the barriers to access are lower. How do you think that affects the content and the stories we're hearing and the stories we're telling? Yeah, so both things have happened, right? So like it's it's more democratized in terms of like what's created, right? There there are no gatekeepers now to the kind of content that's being created. Um, on the other hand, there are still huge gatekeepers in terms of um, like it just kind of like if you look at where people are getting their news, you see gatekeepers, and so Google and Facebook are the obvious ones. Um, Google Google's search algorithm like is both personalized and it's like created by this software company whose algorithm is secret, so you don't really know, and it's not quite clear like where it's steering you toward. That's obviously some kind of gatekeeper, um, and Facebook and just sort of personalization generally like re many people have argued, like reinforces your own, uh, your own interests and beliefs and sometimes like cuts out the access to um, alternative views. So you have this strange thing where there is more information now than ever before and potentially you can access it. Like potentially you can get more opposing views than you could in the past. But in practice, it's not quite clear that that's what's happening because like the kind of the gatekeeper, we've replaced sort of one set of gatekeepers with another kind of gatekeeper, with a few other kinds of gatekeepers. And so I'm not sure, like I think this is still, uh, there's still, we still have to wait to see how it all shakes out. Um, I feel like, I, I mean, I, I feel like I have to work a lot online to get um, all kinds of news, to get, access to many different kinds of stories. It still is not like a thing that is automatic. Um, you know, you have to do a lot of investigation and research to get like all, all the points of view around a story. Um, and it's very easy to kind of get into kind of a bubble, uh, you know, on various kinds of things. Yeah, you were actually uh, the first one to write a book about that, you know, about the post-fact society, even before like the filter bubble came out or, uh, uh, the information diet. Which way do you think the trend is going? I um, yeah, I go back and forth. Like I don't, I don't have like a, a firm answer on this. Like part of the problem is that it's there is new technology all the time that's kind of changing how we get our information, and so it's a little difficult to say like it's going in one direction or another because like tomorrow some new thing could come around and change how we get our news. Um, it seems better now than it was a few years ago. Uh, like I remember, like in two, like in the two thousand eight, between two thousand eight and twenty twelve, um, it seemed like there was, it was it was difficult. It, it was easier for sort of false stories to to get out and stay, um, and and persist in the media. Now I think tools like Twitter and Facebook are better at surfacing kind of. Um, stories that run against your um, preconceived beliefs. And also, the news is much better on picking up things that, that you know, float up on um, Twitter. And so Twitter seems like very good at like uh, getting kind of the other viewpoint out there. Um, but we'll see how it changes. Uh, we have someone with their hand up in the front, yeah. 
<clears throat> Hi, Farhad. Thanks for being here. I'm Lauren Hi. with the Omaha Community Foundation in Nebraska. And I'm curious, you kind of started to touch on it, but um, you still do a lot of digging throughout the internet for the information. And I'm curious about the role of media conglomerates such as The Times, The Post, things like that, where you see them and the role they play as technology advances, continues to advance. Um, media companies, I think, have a, like the, the, the kind of companies that were sort of traditionally media companies, like, like cable news companies and, um, and newspaper companies like The Times and, and The Washington Post, I think have a lot less power in this environment. It's the tech companies that like have more power. Uh, the tech companies kind of control the devices that we use to access information um, and then control like the software that guides us to those inf that information. And so, you know, Apple, Google, and Facebook, um, uh, and Amazon to some extent, uh, sort of are in control of like the movies and TV and the news in a way that, you know, the New York Times will never have that sort of control. Like it, it's, they, they are sort of like dominant in every aspect of how we interact with media. Um, so just like, and it makes sense, right? Like just software is such an important part of how, uh, of like the world economy that it would make sense that like software companies rather than information companies are gonna be sort of the, the future arbiters of this. I see a hand up over there or Hi there, I'm Allison from the Annenberg Foundation, and thanks for being here, Farad. Thanks. Um, I, I'm curious what your prediction is on how virtual reality is gonna change the media landscape, and um, you know, storytelling in general from a communication standpoint. We're, we're looking at it really closely as something to bring people closer, obviously, to the realities of a, of a story or a situation. But I'd love to hear what your prediction is, and also not just in media, but sort of our behavior as human beings with one another real time. Yeah, I'm, I'm totally, totally optimistic about virtual reality. Like every time I use it, I'm um, surprised at how good it is, and it seems like the kind of thing that'll be, like there's, there are like tech barriers, like the technology has to get smaller and cheaper, um, which will definitely be satisfied, and at some point, it seems like it'll be the kind of thing where everyone will use it. Like it'll be the next television. Um, because it's so engaging and so absorbing, like it's, it's probably even better. Like, like pe people, can, you know, people talk about TV as being addictive, but like, I, I think like virtual reality will be like actually like drugs. Like, it'll be like impossible to for us to like disengage because what you're essentially doing is creating like a very realistic environment that is flexible, that is like that you can that is programmable, and so it seems unlikely to me that like it's not going to become the the biggest thing. Um, the question is like how long it'll take, um, and you know, like, and what the business models will be and stuff for this. But um, I think that you know, it's no surprise to me that um, Facebook was that interested and paid two billion dollars to buy Oculus because um, the whole idea of like interacting with other people over text as we do now seems a little bit like like one step away from like true human experience, right? Like when we experience, when we talk to other people, we talk to them face to face and like Facebook is like, like the way we do it on Facebook is like putting one step between us and, and um, other people. And like in the future, virtual reality will sort of erase that one step and you'll be able to do it just very much like how you do it, you know, in real life. So, yeah, does that answer your question? I'm, it's like, I, I'm just like totally optimistic about it. That's the answer. Hi, Katie Genoiat from the Council of Michigan Foundations. And for someone who's not in the tech space, I'm hoping you can frame up net neutrality and let me know if you have a position on it. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's, um, it used to be an easy thing to describe because what it originally meant, I think, was this idea that the 
companies that are um, that are providing the pipes, like the broadband companies that are providing uh, like the way for us to get access to the internet, wouldn't uh, wouldn't have uh, a, a business model that like allowed them to dictate the content. Um, so like Comcast as your broadband provider couldn't like sign a deal with Disney to say that like oh, you would only get Disney channels on your internet um, or that like you know non-Disney channels would be slower in some way. That was an easy way to describe it. What's happened over time is that the way that we get the internet has become so complicated um, and there are these like fundamental questions of how you pay for stuff that uh, I think are interesting. So for example, what's, one of the things that's happening is like content companies themselves, like Facebook and Google, are creating um, broadband networks. So like Google is doing so in the United States with Google Fiber. Uh, Facebook and Google are creating these huge uh, satellites and planes and other things to serve broadband to developing countries. And in those areas, they are in, in various ways like interested in preferentially serving their own content and giving, or like other people they sign deals with. And you could argue that violates network neutrality. Um, the other thing that's happening is like broadband companies are themselves getting into the content business. And like over time, it seems, it seems like the, the content, the broadband business is becoming very much like the cable TV business. Like, uh, you know, you're going to sign up for broadband and like you'll get some channels on it, you'll get some services on it as part of a bundle. Um, and like, that'll just be how it is. Like, you'll pay for content as part of broadband. I think that's, and, and also it seems like, you know, there have been some huge regulatory moves to limit this, but like the business is becoming so complicated that I'm not sure that the regulations will sort of stop the kinds of things that the people who are for network neutrality were worrying about at first. I'll start with my first question, although that brought up a different question. But uh, my name is Rebecca. I'm with a community broadband networks initiative uh, with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. And I'm wondering, uh, as uh, someone who works for the New York Times, what do you feel your role is as a gatekeeper? And how do you encourage alternative voices in your posts and that sort of thing? Um, yeah. So. I mean, I don't really, so the way that I think about it is just sort of like the ethics of journalism, right? Like I write an opinion, I write sort of an analysis column, but I try to be intellectually honest and like get all points of view in it. So I don't want to like set up straw men and I don't want to like, you know, not give people the, their say and sort of defend themselves and stuff. So it's just sort of part of the like ethics of like discussing things. The, um, the reason that it's, like the reason that it's difficult to talk about the New York Times as like a gatekeeper anymore is I'm not even sure that we are, we do serve that function. We like give a certain imprint of like importance to some people, like if they've been covered by the Times, then they're like important in some way, like companies or brands or whatever. But that's much less so than in the past. And also if we do it incorrectly, like if we like, you know, cite a source incorrectly, or like, I mean, cite a source that like, as a, who is not supposed to be cited as a quack of some kind, then like we get called on it very easily, like, and people make fun of us and like, it's bad in a way that it wouldn't have been in the past. So like that gatekeeper role, like there are, there are people watching our role and seeing if we're acting as correct as like, you know, honest, gatekeepers and, and aren't in a way that wasn't before. Okay, then. It looks like we have. Um, I don't, I mean, so not all of the people at the Huffington Post work for free. The question was, what do, what do you, oh, okay. yeah, what do you feel about business models like the Huffington Post, where people write for free? Um, yeah, so not all of the people at the Huffington Post work for free. It, you know, I think like mostly the bloggers that work for free on the Huffington Post are doing it for other things, right? Like they're doing it for 
uh, attention to their cause or because they're celebrities and they want to like be known for some other thing. Um, I think in general, it's really great that there's a lot of experimentation in business models in the media. Um, for a long time, like one of the th like the thing that happened in the media business was people think we're, we're thinking like this is going to fail because like the current uh, business model is changing and no one there was very little experimentation. Now what's happening is like venture capitalists and other investors are pouring a lot of money into various new online um, news startups and some of them are finding new ways to pay for content and it's working. Like BuzzFeed has this native ads model. Um, which s sends advertisements, uh, BuzzFeed like sort of acts as a creative agency, creates ads that then go on to social networks and do really well and pay for hundreds of journalists that they're hiring. Um, all of this kind of experimentation and creativity I think can only be to the good. Like some of these models may uh, not work. I mean a lot of them might, might not work and like some of them may strike kind of people in the legacy media business as a little bit like um, you know like something we shouldn't be doing but um, I think it's good that people are just like trying new things. Okay I think we have time for one last question. And I have the microphone. <laughs> <laughs> Hi I'm Betsy Anderson from the Philadelphia Foundation. I'm glad you're here. What hope is there for the technology have-nots? Not just people from a financial standpoint, but from an, an age standpoint and from a rural lack of wireless signal kind of access. Um, do you see any hope for those folks or has, have they already gotten so far behind that it, it's gonna be impossible to catch up? No, I think there's hope. I don't think there's impossible to catch up. So like just from the financial standpoint, like. Uh, wireless internet is sort of changing everything. Like, like mobile wireless internet is allowing people in places where it seemed not possible to create internet signals. Um, it's going to allow them to get the internet. Like that's happening because big companies are spending billions of dollars to get them the internet. Um, and then from the like people who don't know how to use this technology, that's also getting better. Like the the, the huge change between the iPad and the PC is that the iPad is something that like my two-year-old just in intuitively understood how to use. Like it's much easier to use. Like mobile software is just much easier to use and maintain and there is a lot less that you have to worry about uh, in terms of like bad stuff happening um, than on a PC. And I think that trend is going to continue. I mean, I think software is going to become, like, we're, we're moving toward a, a place where, like, software and computers are more like appliances. They're more like your refrigerator than they are, like, you know, your computer. And like your, and, and, and in that way, like, it'll, like computers are going to be like cars, where, like, you don't need to understand how the car works to use the car. Um, and that seems to be happening in software. Well, that's a nice positive note to end on. So, Farhad Manju, thank you so much for being with us. At cool, thanks so much. Great, Great. nice time. Great, thanks. Hey guys, thank you for sitting through that. That was amazing. Uh, I learned a ton. Uh, and I'm gonna be out on the beach building a wall for robots. If anybody wants to join me, if you're sticking around. Uh, we are done. Thank you for being a part of ComNet 15. I hope that all of you will be with us in Detroit for ComNet 16. Uh, and, and for what it's worth, uh, those of you who are still wearing your badges, which looks like most of you, uh, I'm sure you flipped through them and looked at them like you're a Talmudic scholar. But if you haven't, one of the little things on there says ComNetwork Local. And that is an effort to make good on a promise that we made last year in Philadelphia, which is, many of you told us you loved coming to these events. You loved the idea of getting together with your colleagues and your peers. And you felt it was necessary. But you told us another thing, which was, it's not sufficient. I want to have the chance to see folks more frequently. And I want to do something that I often say I'm going to do, but then don't do, which is you run into somebody who works just down the block from you, and you say, you know, let's get together for coffee when we get back to the city, and we'll catch up, right? And you're sincere. I believe you. But then it doesn't happen. So. Uh, earlier this year, and I don't know if Jamie or Jade is still here, but we launched a pilot program called Com Network Local. And we launched a group inside of that called Com Network DC. And this amazing thing happened. 
we put up something on Meetup. Really simple concept. Just, hey, we're going to put something up and invite people in our community, people who work at nonprofits and foundations, care about communications, to get together somewhere within the area code where we all live, right? And Jade and Jamie and Fuzz Hogan from New America Foundation, and I'm forgetting somebody, Andrew Marshall from the One Campaign, pulled this group together in DC. They put it up online, and they invited them to come to the Case Foundation for an evening uh, with a lecture by a guy from Discovery Communications. I won't get into the details, but they put it up online, and our hope was 12, 15 people might show up, right? That'd be great. That's a kitchen cabinet of folks that you can tap into. 140 people showed up. They're doing another event on Tuesday. So for those of you from the D.C. area, write this down. Tuesday at the Pew Charitable Trusts uh, with National Geographic, 220 people are signed up to come is more folks than we have in the room right now. So uh, I'm excited to tell you that in Los Angeles, they have formed a group here in San Diego. They came together last night. So there is a Com Network LA. Uh, Com Network Denver is getting together, I believe, Dem uh, Rebecca. October 27th in Denver, Com Network Colorado or Com, ne Com Network Denver, I don't know if we've settled on a name, is launching. Uh, New York got together here. That's going to be happening soon, so stay tuned. And if you're interested in starting one in the community where you live, get in touch. But, like, if you wouldn't mind, maybe wait till next week. I'm a little tired. But we're done. We're adjourned. Thank you for being part of this. Sean? Wait, is this on? Hey, Sean, can you stay up there for one second? We got you something. What? Uh, for everybody who doesn't know, it is Sean's birthday tomorrow. So first, I want to congratulate you on making it to 35. Um, and second of all, for being the leader and driving force behind another amazing conference. It is a pleasure to work for you. Please join me in a quick round of applause.